You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So this is our second episode this week in which we're talking about the, quote, war on independent contractors. And earlier this week, we had Kim Cavanaugh, who's a returning guest from Fight for Freelancers, onto the podcast because she had an experience last week testifying before a House subcommittee on the war on independent contractors. Well, on the other side of the union lawyer who doesn't like to be called a union lawyer and who is sitting next to Kim was an economist from the Mercatus Center by the name of Leah Palakashvili. And I know I've messed that up. I watched the House members messing it up every time they tried to pronounce her last name. But her testimony before the House subcommittee was very interesting in that her data comes from an economist's viewpoint. And given the fact that I love talking to economists because they're typically not biased and can assess economic outcomes based on data, I thought it would be good to have Leah come onto the podcast and get her perspective on the debate over the policies regarding independent contractors and really just from an economist standpoint. So here is Leah Palakishvili from the Mercatus Center. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Leah, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. And I'm I'm afraid to bastardize your last name. So it's Pala Shikavili. No, I, mess, I see. I knew I was going to mess that up. It's Leah Palagashvili. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> I saw you last week testifying before the House of Representatives subcommittee on independent contractors. But before we talk about that, can you kind of give the listeners uh, some background in terms of, you know, who you are and what you do? I know you've got a lot of letters after your name. (laughs) Yes. So um, I'm an economist um, at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University as a senior research fellow. And I direct our labor innovation and opportunity project at Mercatus. Um, I, before joining Marquitas, I was a professor of economics at State University of New York, Purchase College. So I was living up in New York City and commuting up to, to Purchase for those listeners who know where that is. Um, and, and yeah, uh, other than that, um, my, yeah, my background is, you know, PhD in economics. Actually, all my degrees have been on economics, undergrad, masters, um, and PhD. You know, as we were ch- chatting before we started, I, I moved to the U.S. with my family um, when I was seven years old and came from a country that was poverty-stricken through war and, uh, you know, political and economic instability. So it has always been fascinating to me to study economics because, it helped me understand why there are such vast differences in the two countries where uh, where I, I was living in. And I've kind of used that lens um, that I, I was introduced to economics in high school, and I've used that lens ever since. So it's just always been fascinating to me. In in what sense the differences? And so, so you know, in, in economics, we, we understand that, like, there are um, different institutional rules and policies that lead to vast differences in economic outcomes. And so that helped 
me understand why do we see such different outcomes in one country versus another. Um, that's how I first got interested in economics when I was a high school student. Um, and, and because I was interested in like, okay, why did this country that I come from was falling apart? Everybody was poor. There was no work opportunities. And then we come to the U.S. and it's like abundance of opportunities and everything. Um, and so economics kind of gives you that lens to, to understand based on based on thinking about what are the institutions and how they incentivize uh, different um, outco- different outcomes and behaviors and why we have um, why do we have an abundance of work opportunities in the U.S. like what led to that and why not in these other countries? So help me out with the timing. You you had said before we started that um, your family emigrated from Georgia, the country of Georgia. Right. So we came from Armenia, actually. Yeah. They were all under the Soviet Union. Okay. So (laughs) from, yeah, that's, well, I was thinking it was, you know, former Soviet bloc. So when you moved, was it, did the Soviet Union still exist? Because you're younger than I am. Okay. Yeah. It it had already collapsed. In the 1990s. Yeah. It had collapsed at that point. So as um, what happened after the Soviet Union collapsed is that there was just, uh, tons of chaos everywhere in right. the in the Soviet Union countries, um, and so Armenia was part of the Soviet Union um, as well. And, and then, unfortunately, it also got into a war with its neighbor, <laughs> and so that didn't help out with things either. Right. So fundamentally, I guess, and this kind of goes to I think where where you kind of are from a political political economic perspective, maybe. Um, the differences between, say, Armenia and the United States is what less government control, or well, I think it's different type of um, policies, laws, and institutions. Um, and so it might be, and in some sense, it does mean less government control, right? And so um, we. And, and and that also, by the way, is also about the Soviet Union too. When I right. was is that what's the difference between the Soviet Union and the U.S. and why weren't there like vast flourishing in the Soviet Union and there were shortages for food, um, but not in the U.S. And and I think there it's a little bit more clear about the institutional differences and the, and the context. Central planning versus not central planning. Yeah, that I mean, that's the big part, right? <laughs> that is there. And, and so I think, um, you know, that's just, you know, once you learn that, it's just it's just very fascinating um, and you can apply it to understanding differences, um, you know, differences in other countries as well that you might see and, and, and why we have different outcomes there, too. I, I use that central planning term um, because it kind of gets into what you were testifying about last week. And you so we should probably talk about both because I watched the congressional subcommittee hearing. And then the very next day you're testifying at the Senate Health yes. Committee, right? Um, at the Senate um, Aging Committee, Special Committee. Oh, the on- Aging Committee. Mm-hmm. There's so many committees. <laughs> yeah. So um, let's talk. Okay, so the first hearing that you did was with the uh, Senate subcommittee, or I'm sorry, the Congressional subcommittee on uh, essentially independent contractors. I think it was labeled Biden's War on Independent Contractors. And I had Kim Cavan on yesterday as well. So um, you had some interesting points and I talked to Kim, not necessarily about your testimony, but uh, some of the data that she was using. And do you, do you mind going into the independent contractor thing and 
one of the points you mentioned is that there's a lot of women involved with independent contracting as well. Yeah, of course. So I, yeah, I think it, you know, first of all, there are a lot of misconceptions about the workforce. And so I'm happy to, you know, take a moment to just outline some of the facts um, that we know about the workforce, which come from official IRS data. So these are kind of undisputed, Mm. (laughs) undisputed tax records uh, findings. So first, we know from tax records that the largest share of independent contractors are actually supplemental high-skilled workers who have full-time W-2 jobs. Um, and that's an, so it's and, secondary income, right? Exactly. Yeah, okay. that's the greatest share of independent contractors right now. And so, and 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 that, and let me just clarify that point: the largest share of independent contractors are supplemental earners who have full time W two jobs elsewhere. Um, the second misconception that we have about you know the independent workforce is that it's being dominated by transportation and uber and doordash and that's not the case so the industry with the greatest number of independent contractors which also saw the greatest growth since 2001 is professional technical and scientific services followed by healthcare okay. um, and, and that gets me to my third misconception about app based workers so app based workers are account for less than 10% of the overall independent contractor workforce. And this is key because everybody misses this. App-based workers are uh, primarily supplemental earners who already have um, you know, full-time jobs elsewhere. Um, and then another kind of fourth misconception that I usually discuss is that the use of independent contractors has grown the greatest um, among small businesses with fewer than 20 employees, followed by medium-sized businesses and large, and lastly by large firms. Again, this is according to official tax data on this. And then the fifth thing I, I talk about is that the growth in independent contracting since 2001 is driven primarily by women, and that um, female independent contractors are more likely to have children than uh, female employees. And I'm happy to jumpstart. I'm happy to, you know, talk a little bit about that as well. Um, if, if you want to know a little yeah, bit more. Please about do, it. because this is, this yeah. is all stuff that is not out there in the public dialogue. You know, all we hear on from one side is that, you know, it's all about Uber and, and DoorDash and Lyft. And, you know, these poor people need to have their gigs basically become employment. Right. So that, that, you know, that fact, um, I try to, you know, get across to as many people as possible because it is a real misconception because, again, Uber and DoorDash and Lyft are ubiquitous in our everyday lives. So we think they're actually way more present <laughs> as independent contractors than they actually are. And also another big thing is, like, as I mentioned, they are supplemental earners mostly. And we see that if you just download, like, the company reports as well. So if you download Lyft's company report... It says on their report, 95% of drivers are also have either jobs elsewhere or they're full time or they're students who are doing this on the side. And then I don't know, I think something like greater than 96% of them work fewer than 20 hours a week. Same with the, with, with the DoorDash report. If you pull up the DoorDash, you know, economic impact report, it says it right there as well. You know, most, the majority, I think it was like over 95% of dashers or 90% of dashers work less than 10 hours a week on average. And so, and, you know, that comes through in individual company reports. And then we see that on the, on the, um, on a whole through the IRS tax records on this, uh, using the 1099 tax records. That's how they can track it. Um, on the female, on the, on the female workers, um, 
you know, that one, that one also gets missed because again, we think of Uber and we're like, well, my, my driver is mostly male. And so, and so we don't think about that, but, um, but two things to note about that since COVID, um, we do see more women in, uh, as delivery drivers, especially for DoorDash and Uber Eats. So that is something important to know. But second, if we take out the transportation industry entirely, women actually make up a greater share of digital income earners. And so they're especially prevalent um, on on um, places like Etsy, like online sellers. If you look at the company reports of Etsy, there's always greater than 85% of those sellers on Etsy are women dog walking apps, um, some of the, uh, on Fiverr, for example, um, I think they posted something as well about more female, um, more females who are posting their, uh, you know, posting for jobs on Fiverr as well. And, and here's the thing, because independent work, the key feature of independent work is that it's flexible work arrangements, right? And these flexible uh, work arrangements, um, you know, can and have been transformative for women. So we've seen across nationwide surveys that women who are primary caregivers have indicated that they engage in independent work precisely because they require flexible work arrangements, which they cannot get through employment arrangements. Now, some employers might provide flexible job arrangements, and that's great, but that's something that they have to negotiate and bargain for with their employers. Not all employment opportunities provide, um, you know, super flexible job arrangements. Right. I need you at the counter. I need you at the machine, you know, from three to six or eight to five or whatever. Yeah. And it's, and it's different type of flexible. You still have to ask your boss, but like if you're a you know, graphic designer on Fiverr, you don't have to call Fiverr and be like, hey, I can't work on Tuesday. Can I work on this project on Friday instead? Or if you're a dasher, you're not calling DoorDash and being like, I can't work at 1 p.m., but I can work at 5 p.m., right? So it's a vastly different type of flexibility even then because it's not about asking a boss when you can or cannot work. Um, For the most part, that is about this. I think that kind of gets lost on the the not this audience, but general public with respect to, okay, you know, I hear in the last week, I heard this that you're hearing as well. The union side folks are like, well, you can just negotiate flexibility and we can do the flexible workplace act or whatever the heck they're talking about, but that's not really how that works. And and people don't understand the argument of flexibility until you break it down. Yeah. I, I do think that's important to emphasize because flexibility is a right for independent workers, it's their state of nature to have mm-hmm. flexibility. It's a privilege uh, for employees that they have to bargain and negotiate for. <laughs> That's vastly two different worlds that we're talking about. You can, of course, like arrange flexible job arrangements with your with your employer or your boss, but again, like you have to bargain and negotiate for that. And probably individuals in lower um, you know, lower bargaining positions can't really, <laughs> can't really do that, right? You can't, um, and, and maybe it's harder to do that as well. So I just think that that's a vital and important difference between flexible job arrangements and employment and flexible work arrangements within independent work. It's an, interesting, it's an yeah. interesting way you just put that, right versus privilege. And well, because legally they do have, I mean. If no, I know. Putting aside real misclassification issues where employers treat kind of where an employer might treat an independent contractor as an employee, but classify them legally as an independent contractor. So putting aside those exceptions where um, 
you know, flexibility is not <laughs> key there. But and by the way, they're violating the law when they do when they do that, and that's important to emphasize. But it is true that it's you know you have a right as an independent worker to flexibility. Right. One of the things that you touched on um, during your your testimony last week was that with the DOL's proposed rules on independent contractors, there's the expectation there will be job loss mm-hmm. or lack of flexible work, so to speak. Is there is there calculations that have gone into that? Yes, there are. And and let me back up and explain, you know, why do we expect job losses? Um, And the reason we expect job losses is because not every single independent work opportunity can turn into a full-time employment offer. And that's because you as like a freelance writer might have 15 different clients that you're working with. And maybe with one client, you produce one piece a week or one piece a month, right? Now, that client is not going to hire you as a full-time employee right. because there's not enough work to do uh, to, you know, there's not enough work to hire you as a full-time or part-time employee in this case. And so it's important to know that because a lot of freelancers kind of have multiple different clients or multiple different independent work opportunities that they work with and they're, and they're small, they can be small, right? It, it can't be the case that every single one of those turns into an employment offer. The other reason that we would get job losses, and we can talk about the estimates here in a second, is because um, even if an independent contractor is properly classified according to the new Department of Labor rule, it's still going to deter businesses, especially small organizations and nonprofits, from working with those independent contractors altogether, only because the rule uh, creates so much complexity and confusion (laughs) about whether someone is indeed properly classified as an independent contractor or not. And these small organizations, they don't have extensive legal counsel like some of these large companies where they can take the risk and be like, actually, like, you know, we think we're properly classifying them as independent contractors. You know, come sue me if you want. We have the legal counsel. So a lot of small organizations won't be able to take that risk, even if an independent contractor is properly classified under the law. So it'll deter them from working with independent workers, freelancers all together. And this is, in fact, what we saw in California's AB5, which is a similar rule that restricted independent workers. When you look at the news articles that the LA Times published, I mean, they took direct quotes from like small operas and music venues and theaters. And half of those quotes from those owners were like, we don't even know if we're complying with the law or not because we're confused and we don't know if we're exempt. And uh, we're just not going to work with any independent workers right now because this is, it's all chaos. Well, and you know, so, yeah. I've, i made is I'm not necessarily a meme, but you know, one of the best examples was Vox news. I, I, I literally did a, a search on Safari or Google or whatever Vox news layoffs, AB five. So the first article that pops up is the Vox News piece praising the gig worker win with AB5. The next one, literally right below it, was Vox News lays off freelancers. And it was like, you know, it was perfect. came up on my phone. I just screenshot it. It said shot and chaser. You know, because there's actually their layoffs were, you know, I think it was even before the law went into effect, as, as soon as Gavin Newsom signed AB5 in. 
Yeah, I do. I do remember that that article. It was it was like two hundred freelance writers that you just stopped right. working with altogether. And now, if you're a freelance writer, you just lost your clients, right? And a right. source of income because of the law. <laughs> so, um, let me see if I can put this into. I'm not an economist, so I try to really kind of dummy it down for myself. But if, for example, a company has, say, 10 freelancers that it's, whether they're photographers or whatever, and now the company has to hire them as employees, but they don't have enough work for all those. So what, and this, I'm coming to a question with this. So what I'm envisioning is, say, if you've got 10, you now have enough work for two full-timers, but you don't need the other eight part-timers hypothetically right yes yes so that, that could could come that way and and one more thing to add um that's important it's not just uh the demand side from the firms it's also the supply side most of these freelancers especially if you're a freelance photographer um they actually don't want to be employees <laughs> right. and so even if you offer them a full-time you know employment job they might say actually no you know I, I prefer working as an independent freelancer. And we know this from the Bureau of Labor Statistics um, uh, Contingent Worker Supplement Survey. Um, they found that a vast majority, almost 80% of independent contractors, uh, preferred their arrangements, and only one in 10 said that they wanted to be employees instead. Now, this is also different depending on the industry that you look at, but photographers in general tend to be the ones where, where they don't want to be employees and they would rather be independent uh, freelancers, kind of picking and choosing the clients that they work with rather than being an employee at, at one particular, you know, with one particular group. Um, and so in that case, you know, I'm not even sure what would happen there. It might be that there's two, might be that there's one, um, and maybe that they can't, you know, they might have a hard time finding anyone, any photographer who might want to be a full-time professional photographer with one, you know, with one organization as their client. That's another way to think about it, right? So you don't have bosses when you're a freelancer, you have clients. Right. <laughs> so imagine you're client all of a sudden is like, well, now I'm your boss and you can't accept work from anyone else and you have to work full time with me. And some, some clients would be like, or some freelancers would be like, well, actually I don't want to do that. Well, so let me ask you for, based on the, the hearing last week, there was a lot of references to like EPI. You had the NELP attorney next to you, the union attorney who got, <laughs> who took offense at being called a union attorney. Do they not see this or are they purposely ignoring it? Well, I think their intention is with the with the Department of Labor rule is is to help misclassification issues. And to be fair, we do see misclassification does occur. Um, and again, it's when workers are treated as employees but are legally classified as independent contractors. Um, and this is, of course, you know, harmful for workers and the department and state regulators um, do have the means and mechanisms to go after those cases. Which um, they do. And, which they do. And, and that is important to point out. So I, I think that what they are trying to do, and this is their intention, is that they think that they can combat misclassification more with this rule, with something like this Department of Labor rule. Um, but here's the problem, right? <laughs> what they don't see um, is that, and, and maybe what they choose not to see, maybe, I'm not sure if they don't see it, um, 
is that this this type of misclassification is not widespread across the entire independent contractor industry. So there are some industries where this happens more often. For example, we see it in construction or maintenance and so forth. Um, and 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 where they do where it is legitimate, uh, you know, misclassification, it's the right thing for the Department of Labor and the regulators to go after them, right? But again, this is this workforce is entirely diverse, spanning across low skilled to high skilled, and and it goes into every single industry. And so when you have these like one size fits all rules where you try to apply this issue, you try to solve a problem of misclassification that is not widespread across the industry with a widespread rule, you're going to get problems like the ones you saw with California's AB5, and these type of rules generally don't work well. Um, Again, just by taking the undisputed fact that this is a, a widely diverse group of people and it spans across you know, like I said, skill levels and education and to every industry. Now, um, and and I think this is something that gets missed. The other thing that gets missed um, with some of those individuals is that they support the rule just based on its intention, which is that it's going to go after misclassification. Whereas as an economist, we're trained to think about, okay, it's not about the intention. The intention is, is fine. Maybe it's going after legitimate bad actors. Um, we analyze the rule based on its outcomes <laughs> or its results. So imagine unintended consequences. Yeah, or unintended consequences. And indeed, like it's really important to point out that there were many supporters, you know, writing in favor of AB five before it went into law. So Senator Warren, many representatives in Congress, many celebrities, and then after kind of the New York Times, L.A. Times, Washington Post kind of pointed out to all these like failings of AB5, they were silent. <laughs> and and to me, that says, okay, they've kind of accepted that AB5 didn't re- lead to the results that, um, that they were thinking it would lead to. And that's why it, it's important to talk about the Department of Labor rule in the same way, which is that those who kind of support the rule are mostly supporting it on the premise of like, the intention is that it goes after misclassification. Whereas they don't look at the they don't look at the potential consequences because I think many of them aren't trained to think like an economist where you're like well we can't just look at what the goal is we have to see like what would be the potential consequences unintended consequences of the rule. Well, so let me pause you there for a second because I noticed this last week during the hearing. Um, there, so people were talking about the ABC test, and mm-hmm. in fact, Bobby Scott was asked about. The ABC test in the PRO Act, is that the same as AB5? And the um, the NELP attorney sitting next to you didn't, either she didn't want to answer it or she didn't understand the question, but it seems as though there's confusion about what it is in the ABC test, which it seems to be part B, that caused so much devastation out in California, which is also in the PRO Act. And that part B as I understand, is also part of the six point. It's worded slightly differently, but it's part of the six point test that that the DOL is developing. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So the B prong in the ABC test is the one that causes the most problems. Um, The B prong says that if um, 
you're in the same course of business as the person that you want to hire as a freelancer, then you can't hire them as a freelancer. So that means if you're a newspaper, you can't hire a writer because you're in the same you know, business. If you're a music venue, you can't hire musicians because you're in the same business. Right. And um, that kind of B prong of the ABC test um, is, is, is the one that does cause a lot of these misclassification issues in the other way, right? Where, where legitimate freelancers are trying to be misclassified as employees, if that makes or, sense. Or to use the, the photography situation, if I'm a photographer and I get double booked, I want to go hire Joe, my buddy to be, you know, to go photograph this wedding that would make him my employee. Right. If you're in the same, if you're a photography firm and you hire the photographer as a freelancer, then yeah, you would have to make them your employee. You can't hire them as a freelancer. Exactly. And so, and here's the thing, the B prong in the ABC test um, has a different name in the Department of Labor six-factor economics realities test, which is called the integrality factor. And that asks like, is the worker integral basically to your business function. And now what the Department of Labor is doing with this new rule is they're actually downplaying, so it's a six-factor economic realities test. They're downplaying other factors within um, within this uh, economic realities test. So for example, they downplay the nature and degree of control, that's the flexibility. And they basically spent many, many pages saying, well, if you have flexibility in this way, that doesn't really matter. Or if you have flexibility in this other way, that doesn't really matter. And they say, but what does matter is this integrality function. So they play up that part of the, um, uh, that part, that factor within the six factor test, if that makes sense. And in that way, they can get it close to an ABC test. Now they, obviously they explicitly say this is not the ABC test. Um, and it's not, right? The economic reality test is not the ABC test, but they can get it to have functionally similar right, results to the ABC test by downplaying some factors, which they do, and playing up other factors like this integrality fa- uh, factor. So it's tomato versus tomato. Well, I think if you gave the rule to an employment lawyer... <laughs> They might come to the same conclusion about a worker, whether it was using AB5 or the DOL rule, only because of the way the language is written in the DOL rule, where it downplays many other factors, like the nature and degree of control, and plays up this other factor that looks like the B-prong of the ABC test. That that signifies that it's going to be problematic, right? And it's interesting because whether it's the DOL or the ABC test, they're both kind of the same. And yet you well, still have people. I think they'll have people... similar results. They're different, but they'll have similar, functionally similar results. And yet nobody wants to acknowledge that. Well, Let me I, say I think... nobody on the other side wants to acknowledge that. I think that AB5 was such a big failure that um, there's a lot of distancing from AB5. So they're distancing example, AB5, the but they're not distancing the PRO Act because it's the same language, right? Um, they are distancing the PRO Act. I've, I've actually read them distancing the PRO Act as well. Uh, maybe not all of them, but I've read some distancing from the PRO Act um, because the PRO Act says ABC test for the purpose of collective bargaining. Um, but the AB5 test 
was AB5 was ABC tests for everything, wages, you know, unemployment insurance, mm. uh, overtime, okay. wage, everything. And so in that manner, they are distancing themselves. The, the PRO Act, the, the supporters of the PRO Act are trying to distance them, themselves from AB5. And the same thing with the supporters of the GOL rule are also trying to distance themselves from AB5. And you saw that at the, you, you, you heard that in the hearing last week, right? Because yeah. no one wanted to stand in support of AB5 um, because, again, this is largely thanks to a lot of media outlets and reporting on this. I mean, they did a really great job of highlighting all of these job losses that occurred. And, and outlets like the New York Times, right, and the LA Times did this. Right. And so I think that's why we didn't see a lot of supporters or people who were supporters early on kind of not say anything afterwards. But they're they're still approaching it from a different standpoint with the DOL. They're just they're coming at it from a different angle, right? With the DOL. Yeah, they don't want to connect the DOL rule to um they don't want to connect the the DOL rule to AB5 because um, they saw that AB5 failed. <laughs> and so it would be hard to kind of try to connect those two and, and say, and therefore this is going to be successful. Um, and then I, I also think it's important to note that even though in the PRO Act, the ABC test is for the purposes of collective bargaining, um, a lot of lawyers have written about how it's going to be functionally similar to AB5 only because you add all of these additional violations and misclassification issues that you're still going to deter workers from trying to work with independent contractors altogether. And so again, right. even though supporters of the PRO Act are trying to distance themselves from um, from AB5, um, lawyers have said that you're going to get functionally something similar. Yeah, it's a spillover effect. You know, it, if... And from a just a labor relations standpoint, it doesn't really matter if, okay, the independent contractors can now unionize because of the ABC test and the PRO Act. Well, why do I want independent contractors anyway? It's just another risk factor. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, and something interesting to point out that I didn't raise at this hearing, but, you know, there was a lot of discussion about misclassification and it made it seem almost as if if a worker was an independent contractor they were automatically misclassified it was right. and and i and i think you know just a step back for a moment is that independent contractors are used by many different types of organizations and including our own department of labor in this very moment is working with independent contractors now I suspect that they're not misclassified employees. <laughs> and I think, um, and, 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 you know, in fact, we just, it's just hard to kind of acknowledge, like, you know what, there are these mutually beneficial relationships where most likely the independent contractors that the Department of Labor is working with right now have full-time um, employment jobs elsewhere. And this is like their freelancing gig, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. They're probably highly skilled, Right. Um, and they are probably used for one-off, uh, you know, projects that the Department of Labor needs right now. And it wouldn't make sense to hire them as an employee. And and probably that worker wouldn't want to be an employee at the Department of Labor because they have a full-time job elsewhere. Um, or maybe they're just someone who vastly, you know, who vastly values flexibility and they don't want to be an employee of any organization. So maybe the Department of Labor is just one of their 15 clients that they work with. 
Um, And I think that kind of gets missed because we think of the big bad corporations that are working with independent contractors and we totally forget that there are federal contractors across every agency and especially in the department of labor they also use and work with independent contractors as well and we wouldn't suspect that they're misclassified employees and therefore we need to rein in on the department of labor and point out that they're not you know providing pension and health care and, and all these other things to those workers that would make um, an interesting op-ed. Well, thank you for the <laughs> for the idea. <laughs> I was just throwing it out there. It sounds like you've got the data that would be able to be put out in print. <laughs> thank you. Um, so let me come back to California versus the DOL. One of the things that happened with AB5 is as soon as that nuclear disaster happened with AB5. They had to go back and rewrite the regs, and then they exempted a whole bunch of different professions. Is that even possible with a DOL reg like this? No. Like exempting exempting photographers? No. The DOL cannot exempt any industries or professions. They can't even exempt small businesses. They actually wrote that in there. That that was in their ruling. They specifically said they're legally not allowed to exempt small businesses, for example. So what that means is that we would expect the job losses to be um, far far more um, across nation across the nation than what happened in California. Because in California, many jobs were saved later, right? When uh, California exempted over 100 professions. Now, because the Department of Labor can't exempt any professions, we're not going to have those job savings that we saw in California. So can we repeat that and simplify it? California went back and rewrote their regs to exempt a bunch of people, a bunch of professions. That will not happen under the DOL regs. That's correct. So this is obviously much more far-reaching because it's nationwide, but it's also far more reaching just professionally with all the professions. Exactly. The photographers, yeah. the doctors, the you know, nurse that does freelance work. Exactly. So just to give an example of some professions that were later exempt, so music industry, right? Um, fine artists, uh, translators, writers, editors, none of those professions will be able to be exempt from the Department of Labor rule. I'm trying to think of what to title this episode. It's like if you thought AB5 was bad, just wait till the DOL's done with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and I, yeah, it, it's just it's just again for me, it's hard to. Um, for me, it's important, I should say, to emphasize the consequences because you know everybody agrees with the intention. If there's true misclassification, right, then. Um, we would be in support of rules um, that would um, stop true misclassification. So if a worker is being treated like an employee, they don't have flexible works, they don't have flexibility and all these various other things, but they're classified legally as employees, um, then that, you know, we wouldn't, we might say that the benefits, right, might outweigh the costs of the rule. But that's not what's happening with this rule, right? There's a, there's, the rules have to strike a right balance between um, independent contractors and employees. Um, 
you can't get, you know, too much in one direction or too much in the, in the other direction. Otherwise, you get legitimate employees who are classified as independent contractors or you get legitimate independent contractors who are classified as employees. Now, this the, the thing I, need, I emphasize usually when I talk about this rule is that this rule doesn't have the balance that it needs and it will and therefore it will actually do more harm than good, similar to what we saw in California's AB5. And to the point that I think the Democratic members were emphasizing is the the AB5 state law ABC test in the in there. And then you just mentioned a few minutes ago that one of them brought up, and I can't recall who it was, but that the the ABC test in the PRO Act is only for the purposes of collective bargaining. The six-part test that the DOL is doing is for everybody, wage an hour, just in general, that's, right? Yeah, that's for um, that's for things under the Department of Labor's authority to do. So that would apply for overtime regulations, minimum wage, and so forth. The mm-hmm. um, PROACT's ABC test is for the purposes of collective bargaining. National Labor Relations that's, Act. Yeah, right. National Labor, exactly. So, and, and that's the distinction that a lot of um, supporters of the PROACT like to make, which is they say, look, this ABC test has nothing to do with wage an hour and overtime and minimum wage and um, family and medical leave, right? Um, but that's where they miss the boat again is because, again, based on legal reports and analyses that I've read on it, it would functionally have the same impact um, uh, nationwide because um, you still get extensive legal violations and um, that, and, and there, there's a lot of, so in the PRO Act, there's a lot of misclassification issues that happen. <laughs> and so um, even, it gets to my point, back to what I said earlier, right? Even if a worker is properly classified, right? You, the violations would still deter organizations, especially small organizations that cannot afford extensive legal counsel from working with contractors altogether. Right. It's like even if they're properly classified, it still deters it based on the extensive violations that are associated with misclassifying the worker under the new ABC test for collective bargaining. Right. And the um in the A B five implementation, it was really and I I might have been Karen that brought this out on one of the podcasts, but it's really where they went after the employers that were using the employers the independent contractors, they get the bullseye put on them. And then they've got the, A, the legal fight as you're talking about, but also the fines, at least in California. So you'd have similar types of fines. Maybe, I don't know if it's going to be more or less, but with the DOL rule. Yeah, that's correct. It really is about, um, and, and I, you know, want to take you back to, first of all, when the LA times did their kind of stories, who did they highlight in their stories? It was all small organizations, nonprofits, and businesses who were like, we, you know, we we just we don't have the resources to withstand any violations, any increased costs, or any any compliance, right? Um, and so I think that is really important to point out. And it goes back to the data point I shared with you earlier with the tax records data is that the growth in independent contractors has been the greatest with small businesses and organizations followed by medium size and then large businesses. And so 
um, we would expect this rule to have a greater impact on small businesses than we would for large firms who, again, also have the resources to deal and, and the extensive legal counsel to deal with this sort of rule. And this is part of the reason why we actually saw the Small Business Administration file a letter to the Department of Labor expressing concern over, over this rule saying, look, this is going to severely harm a lot of small businesses. And, and they also highlighted something that I've highlighted in my Department of Labor public interest comment is that they actually don't try to um, categorize any costs for small businesses in a proper way. And so the Department of Labor assumes that the only cost is that it's the cost of familiarizing yourself with the rule. Well, that's clearly not the only cost of the rule, right? And so, and so this letter from the Small Business Administration highlights like there are actually significant and severe costs to small businesses from this rule that aren't mentioned at all in the Department of Labor. And that allows the Department of Labor to basically say, oh, well, this rule passes the um, you know, cost-benefit analysis test. Well, it passes the cost-benefit analysis test because they didn't classify, they didn't categorize any costs. They just said, here are all the benefits, like more workers will be employees, which means they get, you know, employment uh, related benefits. And so is, I think that's really important to highlight because you can't just assume that 100% of contracting jobs impacted will automatically turn into employment jobs and therefore it's a mere transfer and we don't have to classify any costs with the rule. Like as an economist, I'm just like, no, come on, this is dishonest in a way that, you know, no, no economist, no matter what their political leanings are, what their background is, would say like, that's not a proper cost benefit analysis, you have to assume at least some, you know, job losses, you have to think about other costs related to compliance that might fall more heavily on small businesses. But all of that, it gets ignored in the Department of Labor rule. And then they end up with the conclusion that it passes the cost benefit analysis test. Well, you know, and again, I'm I'm just a labor relations guy. So when you talk about employees, you have typically loaded labor costs, benefits, vacations, all that sort of stuff. So and depending on the employer, you're looking at anywhere from thirty to sixty percent, depending on, you know, because you've got 401k, pensions, stuff like that. An independent contractor who has like five or ten clients or 20 clients or whatever takes care of that themselves. And so even if you're going to do a conversion, if you've got 10 independent contractors, now are 10 independent or now, now employees, you've got to factor in that 30, 40, 50, whatever percent on your loaded labor costs. Like there's a, there's a massive increase right there. We, we do, and that, that impacts businesses, right? But the way that the Department of Labor treats it is as just transfers between business and employees if that, and workers, if that makes sense. So if that's a 30% increase in costs to the business, that gets treated as a benefit to workers. And so on aggregate, it's a transfer. That's Until you have to lay them off. Right. And and that's what they miss. Right. So they assume it's just a one to one. And so you can't assume a one to one because that's not realistic. It's not grounded in any economics research. And based on anecdotal evidence from California's AB5, we know that's not what will happen. Yeah, it's incredible. And I'm I still I think I asked Kim the question, but um, 
I've asked this before. Is it intentional? Is it ignorance or malice? I guess that's the question. Are they intentionally like downplaying the risks or so are they just idiots? I, I, I can't speak to the intentions. I can just tell you. I know you're an economist and you're not yeah. offering opinions. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I really don't know the, you know, I really don't know what the intentions are when they do these kind of cost benefit analysis and what kind of assumptions, implicit assumptions that they make and why they make them. But I will tell you that the Department of Labor's assumption that 100% of independent work opportunities turning into employment opportunities is not grounded in any economics research. It's unrealistic and it just, it won't happen. Again, we saw with AB5 as anecdotal evidence, like you have to make some range. So the question is not whether there will be job losses. The question is how much. And the question is, does the job losses outweigh the benefits that will we, what we get from the rule? And they, they don't even try to make that assessment is what I'm saying. They just assume there will be no costs, no job losses, no costs. That's incredible. So, you know, I'm going to come back to the PRO Act for a minute. And I just saw probably or just found about two weeks ago where, you know, the CBO, whenever there's a, a piece of legislation going up, is supposed to give some sort of analysis to it, cost analysis. And mm-hmm. I saw the on the PRO Act, the CBO actually said back in, I think it's 2019, 2020, whenever it was, that they couldn't do it. Like they could not give a cost to the the legislation because they weren't sure how employers labor practices, what they would have to do to comply, et cetera. So they just like, you know, kick the can. And I found that interesting, you know, and that was about the pro act, but then you're talking about the SBA that's kind of giving warning to the DOL saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. And DOL, DOL doesn't seem to have any, ability to cost out what their proposal is. Yeah, I, I, it is a common answer I've heard about. Well, we, and and they, it's not only the DOL. Um, I've seen other agency regulatory rules where they're like, well, we don't know what the, what the, what the cost estimate is. And then they just ignore it. So I I've seen it, I've seen it before as well. And, mm-hmm. and actually like, I just want to mention this is, this is also connected to California's AB5. Before AB5 was passed, the California's legislative assistance office, I think I got that right, released a report trying to understand AB5. And they said like, look, we can't quantify like what the cost will be, but we know that there will be far fewer than the 1 million independent contractors that will become employees. And so at least they were kind of explicit there. Yeah. Right. And and then they, they gave an explanation. They're like, cause we don't know how businesses will comply. Businesses might not work with any independent contractors. They might decide not to work with California freelancers, but work with, I don't know, Utah freelancers and so right. forth. And they gave an explanation. They said, we can't give a number, but we know it will be, there will be job losses. There will be far fewer, and they said it, and you know, I don't have the exact language, but it said it'll be far fewer employment opportunities that come out of the independent work opportunities. So somebody was the canary in the coal mine there. They just uh, yeah. ignored it. And, yeah, and and yeah, to be fair, like you um it was important that they said this. 
And then they also said, like, we can't quantify. And to be fair, it is hard to quantify. I mean, I um, cited a simulation in my testimony that tried to do this in Massachusetts. And um, and it was only with ride sharing drivers. So um, it was what if Massachusetts passes like a similar AB5, ABC test reclassification policy? What would the impact be on um, earnings opportunities? And they found about 58 to 85 percent. Um, uh, losses and earnings opportunities in the state of Massachusetts. Now, again, this was based on a simulation. Uh, we right. actually don't have um, good empirical data from California's AB5 yet. It's relatively new, right? And so um, we don't know, like, what was the exact number of job losses um, from AB5. But we do have some of these um, policies that that oh sorry we do have some of these research papers like the simulation that tries to attempt to get to a number and that number was about fifty eight percent to eighty five percent of earning opportunity losses. Well, if you're to use the um, data from post AB five in California, it's probably going to be tainted automatically because they did so many exemptions, right? Yeah, you would have to, um, and um, yeah, you would have to analyze it with exempted versus non-exempted industries. Right. Well, then I guess the other question with that would be, did other states benefit from AB5? I'm not, that's a good question. I'm actually, I'm not sure if other states benefited. Um, Some of the workers may have because um, some organizations may have hired freelancers not based in California. Um, Right. I was using your Utah example. As, as you said that a few minutes ago, I'm just like, hmm, I wonder if the, you know, photographers in Utah got more work or the writers in Utah. Yeah, they could have. I haven't seen anything um, to try to quantify that or, or look at that research, but it's it's quite possible because we've seen it through anecdotal kind of evidence as well right. um, about how uh, some freelancers talked about, right, and this was also in, in some of the news outlets reports, how um, their organization decided to hire uh, an um, an independent, you know, freelancer, independent contractor in a different state, uh, but, and they cited, you know, AB5 as the reason. So, again, I haven't seen a specific kind of research paper on it, but it could be true that we would we would see growth of independent workers in other states versus California. Well, and then and then there's the freelancers that moved out of state to keep their jobs or their their gig economy type work, right? So there's, I think uh, Stuart Varney had a truck driver, female truck driver who had a business that she moved over to Texas or Arizona or something. So uh, Yeah, I saw I saw some of those news outlets as well. And it just really speaks to um, you know, how impacted the freelancers were right. when this when this rule passed. And I and I I feel for them because they lost their clients, they lost income opportunities um, because there was a rule that basically said the jobs that they don't have, you know, that the jobs that they currently have, they don't deem as good jobs. And that's some some of the um, kind of language that I saw around this as well um, with the with the sponsor of the bill, for example. It was it was something like, well, these aren't good jobs anyway, so it's okay. And uh, you know, as as an economist too, we have to be subjective here. It's like, what is a good job depends on the person. Yeah, <laughs> who, whether who that are is a you good to job. decide that? Yeah. And so, again, it's kind of and this gets back to kind of the flexibility point, which is to people who have this vision that a good job is to have, you know, 
the good job is one that provides stability, security, and benefits, then independent workers who voluntarily leave full-time employment or those independent workers who say that they prefer to be independent workers and don't want employment, like to them, those people must seem insane. <laughs> and they're like, hold on, like a good job is one that has provides stability, security, and benefits. Your right. job provides nothing, none of those. And so I can, I totally can see it from, you know, for the freelancer's point of view being like, hold on, like, I like what I do <laughs> and kind of being like pushed shocked that like someone would think that a good job has to be those things. And, you know, again, I go back to my profession economics. We say, you know, there's a lot of subjectivity about what it means to have a good job. And in fact, there's a lot of research trying to place, um, trying to understand what is the value of flexibility to different workers. And so, and so we we do see in research that people say they're willing to take pay cuts just to have flexible work arrangements. And this gets to one of the other testimonies that I did, um, you know, right after right after the House one, I went to the Senate and we did a um, testimony for I did a testimony for the Senate Aging Committee and talked about the work opportunities for older workers. And here's where it gets really fascinating and interesting. There was a recent um, economics academic, uh, you know, article published in one of the top, you know, economics journals. Um, and it found that 60% of non-working older adults said that they would be willing to return to work if they could have flexible work arrangements. And furthermore, what is really important is they actually said 20% of those workers would be willing to take more than a 20% hourly wage reduction just to have flexibility. And now pair that with another um, study, economic study, which found that many employers do not offer employees nearing retirement um, uh, the, the option to reduce their um, hours on their current job. And in general, you know, what we've talked about before, which is it's much harder to get flexibility in an employment arrangement than it is with independent work arrangement. Right. So for many older workers, independent work is an attractive way to ease into retirement or earn income when they are no longer part of the full-time employment workforce, especially if they already have health care coverage, um, which means that this sort of Department of Labor rule eliminates independent, you know, to the extent that it eliminates independent work opportunities, it will definitely harm older workers who specifically turn to those um, opportunities. So you're harming women, you're harming senior citizens, you're, in, you're throwing grandma over the cliff, I guess. Yeah, you might be harming um, uh, workers with disabilities as well. And uh, the reason I say that is because workers with disabilities might also require flexible work arrangements, which they might have a harder time getting in a full-time employment arrangement, or maybe they require reduced hours arrangements, right? Um, and so the New York Times, actually, they did they did a story on a copy editor, I believe, um, who had a disability in California who was impacted by AB5 as well. Um and then one more group of people is, uh, this is new, but the IRS just released a report on their website looking at workers who previously had a criminal record. Um, and they found that workers who previously had a criminal record, um, and then after seven years, their record was cleared, they're more likely to go into a gig economy independent worker jobs than employment opportunities. And so restricting independent work could actually disproportionately harm um, workers who had a criminal record, again, based on this recent evidence that 
the gig economy is providing an important avenue of work for those who previously had a criminal record. And that was directly aligned from the from the report about this. It seems like through the DOL's rules and the PROACT ABC test that they're really, it's almost as though they're impacting their core constituencies more so than, I mean, it's like they're taking big swings at women who do flexible work, senior citizens, as well as, you know, criminals who are out of jail. Yeah, I think that gets missed in the narrative, again, because we just look at the intention of the role, like, oh, it'll help, you know, uh, workers who are misclassified, and then they don't take the second order kind of analysis of it. Okay, but who else gets impacted by this? How do they get impacted by this? Are we talking about legitimate gig workers and independent workers and legitimate freelancers who will lose their jobs? Right. So let me ask you, and I know we have to wrap up, um, mm-hmm. but what is the time frame in terms of the DOL coming out with their rules? I've heard May, but we're almost in May. So have you heard anything? I have not. I, I've heard May because that's what it's listed. Um, I think on their website or elsewhere, but I haven't, I haven't heard anything else besides May. Um, maybe it'll be closer to June because I think they tend to be, all, all the agencies tend to be a little behind on their timelines. And do we think this is definitely coming out or can they change their minds at the last minute? Well, I think what they, they have to incorporate 55,000 comments that they got on this rule mm-hmm. and they change the rule itself um, depending on those comments that they received, the public comments that they received. So it's not set in stone that the rule will look exactly like the way it looked in the you know proposed um rule that we saw in October, um, it might look different. The final rule might look different. Okay. Well, Leah, thank you so much for coming on. I know you've got to run and, and I should probably wrap up as well, but I love these conversations because it kind of, I don't understand it all, but it helps to kind of bring it home. Thank you so much for having me on here. We'll have to do it again sometime. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Thank you. Thanks. Maybe when the DOL releases its rule. <laughs> yeah. That'd be perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was economist Leah Palkovshvili, a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And I've just got to say, as many times as we've done episodes on the ABC test, AB5, the PRO Act, the DOL six-part rule, I learned something new, as I did today. And I guess you could equate it if AB5 was Three Mile Island. What it sounds like is the PRO Act or the DOL six-part rule is Chernobyl. It's something to be aware of and hope it doesn't happen. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. You can give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. Have a great week. Thanks for listening. Coyote chewing on a cigarette pack of young boys going howling at the moon. Head darling, sleeping on the black top. Head darling, running through the trees, honey. Head darling, leaving for the next You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio.
Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.